Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Welcome to another edition of Fenway Rundown. I'm Sean McAdam. Chris Cotillo is off this week, but we are happy to have as our guest on this episode, former Major League pitcher and current broadcaster, David Cohn. David works for both the Yes Network in New York on Yankee games, and you'll see him on ESPN's Sunday Night Baseball this Sunday and then the following Sunday with back-to-back Red Sox-Yankee series. That should be fascinating. David was always one of the more intelligent and analytical players in his playing career. And now as a broadcaster, that remains. It's always great to pick his brain. So here's David Cohn on Fenway Rundown. It's been a terrific week on the podcast. We spoke with former Red Sox manager and current Cleveland Guardians manager, Terry Francona, earlier in the week. And today we're thrilled to welcome David Cohn, longtime major league pitcher, winner of 196 games over 17 seasons, including one with the Red Sox toward the end of his career, and now an analyst both for the Yes Network and ESPN. David will be calling not only this Sunday night's game on ESPN uh, Sunday Night Baseball, but also the following weekend, back-to-back Red Sox-Yankee games. David, thanks for joining us, and welcome to the podcast. My pleasure, Sean. Glad to be on. And, uh, you know, we were in first place in 2001 for about half the season until Veritech got hurt and Pedro got hurt. And so, yeah, yeah that, that was a weird year, 2001, for the Sox. It certainly was. Yeah. And, of course, the 9-11 situation and throwing everything up in the air and the, the delay in September. And it was certainly a rocky year with a managerial change in Boston. But we'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> maybe not your favorite season among your 17 and <laughs> Uh, in your big league career, David, but nonetheless, um, it it is a little odd, I think, that with the new balance schedule, we're almost in mid-June, and this weekend features the first meeting of the year between the Red Sox and Yankees. Part of that, of course, is cutting down the number of division games from 19 to 13, but it is odd that these two rivals have played nearly 65 games before they're getting their first up close look at one another, isn't it? It really is. It's going to take some getting used to, uh, you know, a lot of people think that it's better than more balanced schedules better. You know, you get a chance to see in the entire league, but you know, ESPN is going to jump on these games. I think that's why you're seeing back-to-back weekends of Yankees Red Sox because they're going through withdrawals because they don't get their pick of the litter, so to speak. So those, those ratings are always great when the Yankees and Red Sox get together. And there's a reason for that. One of the greatest rivalries in all of sports. 
Yeah, has, has that diminished over the recent years, David? I know that there were a couple of postseason meetings. Uh, the, the wild card game in 2021 uh, was a lot of fun. Um, but it seems like um, it's hard to, for whatever reason, and I'm sure there are many of them, it's hard to replicate that intensity that we saw, say, 20 years ago. Uh, the 03 through 04 and 05 era, that seemed to be the Red Sox-Yankee rivalry at its peak. Where is it now? Well, you know, there's it, it, there's two different viewpoints. Obviously, there's on the field, and you're absolutely correct. Uh, the rivalry in, in, on the field amongst the players is not the same. But amongst the fans, it still is. You know, I mean, there's generations of, of fans that – that really uh, thrive on this. It's more about the the people who root for the laundry, so to speak. And there's always going to be that animosity back and forth. There's always going to be that, you know, uh, we got to beat the Yankees or vice versa and on the other side, just beat the Red Sox. So yeah, I I've learned that sometimes the game is bigger than you because of the, f- the family connections, the father's daughters, the, you know, father's sons, uh, mother's daughters, I mean, it's passed on. And uh, that part of it will never leave, but yes, on the field, uh, there's, there's a little less juice nowadays is part of that David because maybe some of the continuity gets lost you know back then you had guys that were there um, not that this was pre-free agency of course but when you look at the Red Sox roster of, of David Ortiz and Jason Veritek and Trot Nixon and Pedro those players were there for a long time so was that core four with the Yankees now it just seems like there's so much roster churn from year to year. It's difficult for maybe those rivalries to sustain themselves in the in this era. That is a great point. You can even go back even even further in time when you think about the matchups. You know who's better, Thurman Munson or Carlton Fisk, or even you know in the '90s, who's better is Nomar or Jeter better? I mean, there was a legitimate argument in the heat of the battle of uh, no, Nomar's better. He's got more pop. Well. No, Jeter's better because he's a better all-around player. I mean, those kind of discussions. Veritek and Posada, you know, who's the better catcher? You know, uh, Pedro Martinez and, and Roger Clemens when he came to be a Yankee or, you know, whenever we played uh, the, the Sox, matching up against Pedro was a big deal for any one of us, whether it was David Wells or myself or Andy Pettit. You know, we 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 really we, we felt that matchup and that comparison. And you're right, Sean. I mean, those comparisons. I mean, where do you go on the field now to, to make those those kind of comparisons? It's kind of hard to find. You, you have the unique perspective of not only uh, being on both sides of the Yankee Red Sox rivalry, if, if only for a year with the Red Sox, but also a lot of time spent in New York with not just the Yankees, but the Mets. Um, what? What struck you in your playing career about the difference uh, in playing in New York and playing in Boston? You know, you know, for me, I guess, obviously, New York has two teams, you know, the, the, the you know, on the surface only when you have two teams in, in one market, there's a little bit of a split there and there's a little bit of a competition you know, for uh, the back page, so to speak. George Steinbrenner used to talk about the battle for the back page in New York. We got to be on the back page of the Post or the Daily News, and he really took that to heart. And in Boston, you know, it's it's that is it. It is it is the Red Sox. And uh, the thing I noticed about Boston was you know, there really is kind of a, a generational pull there, where it, it's more than just the Red Sox. It's more than just the the record on the field or the players on the field. It's much larger. It's, 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 it's bigger than any one player on the field. It's, 
it really is passed down through generations and it, it's an event when you go to Fenway Park. It really is an event. You know, the Red Sox could be in last place. Still going to be a sellout crowd on on a particular sunny uh, summer day, and it's, it's still going to be, you know, families, grandfathers, and grandkids, and and that is really passed on in in Boston, and something that that I really cherish seeing that firsthand playing there. Do you think that for the rivalry to even approximate where it once was twenty years ago, that there needs to be a number of postseason meetings between the teams to kind of stir that juice up. We had the one wild card game, which had a lot of atmosphere at Fenway because it had that winner take all uh, feeling toward to it. Whoever won that game was moving on. Whoever didn't was gone nine innings and that's it. But do you think that, you know, there needs to be maybe a couple of ALCS meetings between these teams soon to see if that can be uh, reimagined in that rivalry resuscitated in today's format yeah that's even more important sean you're exactly right um we've got an expanded playoff format now we've got a more of a balanced schedule so they face each other obviously less less times in the regular season so yes i would absolutely agree with that that you need that that kind of matchup you know where winner takes all somebody goes home you know that, that there's nothing quite like that you know you you get to a final game a, a closeout game and whoever wins moves on and whoever loses goes home that's the, the finality of that really kind of kind of gets the rivalry going again. We mentioned that this is the first meeting of the year between the teams this weekend. So uh, fans of each team have only seen the other from afar. You get a close-up look at the Yankees on most days. We know that they have been hard hit by injuries. Uh, they only recently welcomed back Stanton and Donaldson. Uh, they've had a number of injuries to their starting rotation. Uh, Rodon has still not pitched for them. Severino's been in and out. Uh, Cortez is hurt. And now Aaron Judge, although it doesn't look like that's going to be too long uh, of an injury for him. But uh, David, catch us up to date on what's going on with the Yankees and how they've been able to deal with that slew of injuries. Well, you know, I think Garrett Cole has had a great year, you know, at the top of the rotation leading, even though it was probably a better start. He's fallen down to earth a little bit in his last few starts, but still leading the way. Domingo Herman has been much better than than you think he, than anybody thought he was going to be. Clark Schmidt starting to round into form. But if you look at the Yankees outfield and on Sunday night baseball against the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium, we had Kiner Falefa in center field. We had Willie Calhoun in left field and Jake Bowers in right field. That was the Yankee outfield. Now, no disrespect to those guys. I like those guys. They're playing well. They deserve to be in the big leagues uh, based on their performance, but that's the Yankee starting outfield against the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium. It was just breathtaking. And they ended up winning two out of three. So go figure with, with the diminished value of the outfield when with all the injuries Aaron Judge out Aaron Hicks getting released now in Baltimore they are short on outfielders and the only way you can find it is within in your own organization the trade deadline a lot of people are predicting is probably going to be a dud because more teams are in it uh, the value of trades is is boy you really gotta you gotta think it through because the prices are so high for starting pitching look at the price for Luis Castillo last summer in Seattle and what they gave up. Now we're starting to see the talent that they gave up. And, and Ellie De, De La Cruz, it looks like a world beater in Cincinnati, uh, among others. There's others that they got in that trade that are going to be showing up in Cincinnati soon too as well. So the price is so high. It's hard to find pieces. you got to really uh, develop from within and reach down in your own system to, to pull up reserves. 
you mentioned Garrett Cole being the guy who led the rotation and you would expect that he's their number one guy. Um, and though he, he is not going to be on the field this weekend and, and not next either, um, the, the season that Aaron judge is and was having before uh, running into that wall at Dodger stadium over the weekend is pretty remarkable. <clears throat> when you think of, you know, the 62 home run season and how can he top this? And yet you look at the numbers and they're right in line with what he did last year. Are, are you surprised? I, I guess we shouldn't be surprised by anything Aaron Judge does anymore, but are you surprised that he is performing at this level for a second straight year? I, I, just to be honest, I got to say I am a little bit surprised. I think we all expected a regression. I mean, uh, anybody who, who has been around the game and studies the numbers and, and talks to analysts in today's game knows about regression to the mean and how obvious that, that he was a candidate for that. But he, he really, from a rate step uh, uh, standpoint, uh, in some ways better. His barrel rate, depending on the look underneath the hood, if you want to pull – pull open the hood and look at what Aaron judge is actually doing. It's, it's on, on par or even better. And in some ways better that that shouldn't surprise us because Aaron judge is relentless in his pursuit of getting better. He's never satisfied. He, he if you watch his, his progression from the minor leagues up through the big leagues, he's progressively gotten better every year at something. Now his strikeout rate is down. Yeah. Now he's, he's just zeroing in almost like Barry bonds back in the day on getting that one pitch in that bat and putting a good swing on it and not missing it. So he really is uh, continuing to improve, continuing to get better. He's an all around player, great defender in right field. We saw it in LA in that play. He's a leader in the clubhouse. He's a true captain. I mean, there really is no weaknesses to this guy's game. And a lot of it is because he's so humble too. You ever watch him hit a home run, puts his bat down, runs around the bases. There, there's no uh, histrionics. There's no uh, look at me kind of attitude. Uh, it, it's just him hitting a home run, putting down the bat, running around the bases, and then trying to get better the next day. It seems, David, that he's uniquely suited to play in that atmosphere in New York. For all the things you just mentioned, doesn't have a huge ego, um, isn't a, a, a show-off. There's no look at me element to him. Uh, having as someone who played a long time with another Yankee captain, Derek Jeter, uh, different players, different positions, different era, but is there a, a commonality that runs between those two? Do you see some similarities? They, they lead by example. Absolutely. They're not raw, raw style guys. Although we do hear behind the scenes and it's hard to get information because some of the major, as you know, some of the major league clubhouses are so closed off and, access is limited compared to back in the day when Sean, you and I used to go out to the hotel bar afterwards and maybe, maybe have a pop and talk about the game a little bit. Those days are over. Uh, but judge does what, from what we hear does is more of a raw, raw guy than you think he is more of a leader in terms of gathering the players together. There's, there's hotel rooms on the road that he pays for or initiates and gets everybody after a game together in the same hotel room or suite in order to just kind of hang and get to know each other or team functions and outings that he kind of organizes as well. So yeah, he's, he's more than meets the eye as far as a leader goes and a captain goes. What's your take on the division, David? We know that it's a great one that uh, every team is at 500 or better. Mm -hmm. As we record this, um, there were, you know, three playoff teams from the East last year. Um, it's possible we could see that again, if not more this year with the third wild card. 
what surprised you about the division and, and how do you see it a little more than a third of the way through? Well, I, you know, I think obviously Tampa is a surprise, even though they probably shouldn't be at this point. I mean, they keep on keeping on for, they find different ways to do it, but offensively they're a surprise, the depth of their offense, the power in their offense this year, seemingly overnight, collectively, their entire offense is a threat out of nowhere. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody saw their launch angle uh, rate collectively go up. Nobody saw their barrel rate collectively one through nine, almost go up through the roof, the way they are driving the baseball. Now, the way they're turning it loose, the way they're hitting more home runs. That is the surprise. Uh, The Tampa Bay offense, a huge surprise. And it's so good that they've been able to withstand devastating injuries to their rotation to lose who they've lost. Drew Rasmussen is one of the best young right-handers I saw this year, his stuff, his pitch design, the way he, the way he uh, uh, understood his, his, the way to go about sequencing his pitches, I think was one of the best in the American league. Jeffrey Springs as well. The lefty, they lost him. So the list goes on and on. They've, they've suffered some big blows to their pitching staff, but their offense is carrying them and, and nobody saw that coming. So to me, Tampa Bay is the biggest surprise because of the way they swing the bats. And, and how about Baltimore? Uh, you know, they they became relevant again last year, took a big step forward, had, you know, almost a 20-win jump uh, from the year before. But some people question whether they had done enough this past offseason, uh, that they were not big players in the free agent market when it looked like that might be a time to open up the purse strings and spend to get relevant again. They didn't do that. And yet they are close on Tampa Bay's heels. Has their first couple of months surprised you? A little bit on the pitching side. They're much better than we thought. You know, they found somebody, Cano, that's just uh, unreal, this reliever to go with Bautista. Probably the best one-two power punch in the big leagues right now is Bautista and Cano, two right-handers that really complement each other. Bautista gas over the top and a splitter. Cano kind of lower three-quarters with sinker sliders and change-ups. They have been untouchable. So, yes, their pitching has been a bit of a surprise, including their bullpen, but also somebody like a Tyler Wells has really come on in their rotation. So I, I think they're getting just enough pitching. You think about Kyle Gibson, the veteran, really coming around and pitching well. So we knew offensively they were coming. We knew they had a lot of good prospects. We knew Adley Rushman is a generational type of a talent that can really be a franchise player, a catcher, a switch hitter, a leader. That That is just a gold uh, a gold nugget that, that Baltimore has to lead their franchise. So yeah, they have a really good lineup and their pitching is better than advertised and they're for real. They're not going away. Let's get back to Red Sox Yankees for a minute. Uh, you have managers in this series and this rivalry, uh, both of whom like yourself were broadcasters at ESPN at one time. I don't know if that means we're going to see you in the dugout uh, anytime soon as manager, um, but uh to what degree do the Yankees and Red Sox reflect Aaron Boone and Alex Cora's personalities? Well, I, th- I think from from the Yankee standpoint, and you know, Aaron Boone has been ejected from more games than any anybody else, and it's all I, I would say ninety nine percent of it is strike zone oriented, and a lot of that has to do with Aaron Judge being six seven. Aaron Judge has more low calls low pitches that are out of the zone called strikes against him than anybody in the big leagues. A lot of it is just because he's so enormous at at home plate that Aaron, Aaron Boone has kind of a mission to protect his best player. And I think a lot of that is managers getting thrown out or arguing balls and strikes nowadays. It's a tough one. 
It's not like the days of, of Billy Martin and Earl Weaver who would argue about anything. There was any sorts of things that would go on. There's just only one thing for managers now. It's a strike zone. That's what Aaron Boone does. That's why he gets the respect of his players because they feel like they don't have to argue balls and strikes. They can let him do it for him. Aaron Judge rarely argues anything on the field. So that's how he kind of makes his connection. Uh, you know, Alex Cora is just kind of a savant, as you know. I mean, uh, you know, Sean, he's just so plugged into so many different areas. He he encompasses so many different skills, the way he communicates with players, the things he sees. He's the perfect combination of old school and new school. He still has a lot of old school in him, the way he was raised in the game and, and the feel for the game sort of the boots on the ground, you know, what do I see as the action is happening? The, the eye test, he probably combines the eye test with an understanding of analytics as well as anybody in the game today, including being able to communicate with his players. So I'm a huge fan of Alex core. I think uh, he's a reason why they're even in it. They're around 500 right now because he can mix and match with a diminished roster and an and, and injured roster as well as anybody as he's kept them right there. It's a different game in 2023, David, with a lot of rule changes, the pitch clock, the shifts, the disengagement on the throws over, more stolen bases, quicker games, 60-something games in. What's your take on what it's done to the product on the field? Is it better, worse? What do you think? I think it's better. There's there's still some adjustment periods to go. Players are still a little, little uncertain here and there. Is it 20 seconds? Is it 15 seconds? How much time do I do I have? You know, the awareness of the clock is not quite there yet in terms of across the board. Some players, it is there. Some players are using the clock to their advantage, especially in running situations with a man on first. Batters are waiting to get into the box almost 10 or nine seconds to disallow the pitcher from holding the ball and and, you know, inhibiting the running game. So there is some gamesmanship with the clock, but overall, Sean, I think it's, it's fantastic. Uh, Major league baseball is thrilled so far, not only just the time of the game, but the the shift has allowed uh, bad, you know, balls, uh, balls in play more, but the balls that are put into play have a higher batting average this year. So pulled ground balls, to lefties, I mean, any metric you want to go through, everything's up the, in the direction that major league baseball wants more action, less dead time, uh, players adjusting players will adjust i think it's it's all been good running game is really kind of the action is back into the game and we've had a couple of games that were close to two hours in the bronx couldn't believe it remember those games the yankees and red sox would play on labor day or memorial day that would last four and a half hours and i think that might be a thing of the past yeah i'm, I'm wondering what david cone broadcaster thinks about the quicker pace and as you said no dead time um it, it's probably been an adjustment for you in your partners in the yes, yes booth. And then on Sunday night on ESPN, you've got to make your point quickly, get in and out. How much of an adjustment has it been for you as a broadcaster? It, it is a big adjustment. You, you, you end up uh, waiting on points to make for them to come back around. You might have a thought in your mind or a relevant point you want to make and it's gone. So you got to, we got to kind of store it and look for an opportunity to bring it back up later in the game. So there's a lot more of that going on. In a three-man booth, especially, I know I talked to Eduardo and, and Paul O'Neill a lot about this. Is We do a lot of hand signals in the booth. You take the replay. You can anticipate a replay coming. You take the replay, but leave me a little room on the back end for a one-liner in case I have one, just in case. So th those are the type of things that are going on in the broadcast booth now is a lot of hand signals, a lot of trying to leave just a little room on the back end of a replay, and then a lot of holding of points until they come back around full circle later in the game. 
Yeah, I would imagine it's a whole new rhythm that, you know, just like the players have to adjust to. And I've spoken to local broadcasters here in Boston on both the TV and radio side. And, you know, they're, they're talking about having to pick their spots, get in and get out with their point, maybe wait for a foul ball to go into the stands to be able to tell a quick anecdote. It, it would seem to be a pretty big adjustment. It is a big adjustment. And I find myself sitting on my hands a lot, you know, like almost ready to start talking into the microphone and then wait, okay, just wait. This is not the right time. So there's a, there's a lot more reading of the situation than there used to be where you just kind of, it was a foregone conclusion. You can, Oh, I can jump right in here and make that point. There's plenty of time. And you know, you know, you, you really have to pick your spots nowadays. On the pitching side, we hear a lot of talk now about this alleged new pitch, the sweeper. And I'm wondering as someone whose trademark pitch was the slider uh, during your long career, um, what you think of that? I mean, it seems to just be a rebranding of a sort of hybrid breaking ball. Uh, what, what do you make of all the attention being paid to this so-called new pitch? Yeah, well, it's, it's something that's always been there. I mean, if you, you want to see, go, go to YouTube and look up Dave Steve from the Toronto Blue Jays and watch his slider. It's probably one of the best sweepers of all times. I mean, his would stop almost in midair and make a left-hand turn and break horizontally more than vertically. So yes, sweepers have always been around. This is just about you, you hit the nail on the head, Sean, it's rebranding, it's marketing. And I don't, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, they're trying to make pitching exciting. They're trying to categorize pitches so that they can evaluate pitches, especially with the technology and baseball savant. Uh, the, the one thing with, that we've learned with the high-speed cameras is the study of the spin. The, spin. the way the seams are oriented now really can impact the break and the movement on the pitch. And I think that's what this comes down to is, you know, seam-shifted wake is another term that, that's been thrown out there that really, really is based on the, the orientation of the seams and how they can make the ball break more horizontally or more vertically as opposed to a gyro spinning kind of a breaking ball that might break more, more, more tilt to it. So this is really what it's about. It's about marketing. It's about trying to categorize pitches and pitchers trying to learn themselves on, Hey, if I grip it like this and throw it like this, I can get this side, this sort of sweeping break to it. It's the study of the spin that that's kind of leading to all this, this new classification, but it's really all, always been around. Red Sox Yankees at the stadium this weekend, Red Sox Yankees at Fenway the next weekend, six games, two series in about 10 days. When we're through with those, there'll still be almost 90 games left in the season. So a long way to go, but how big are these six games and what do you think we'll learn from them? Well, but they're, they're big in that there's not as many head to head games, obviously. So the, you can really make hay, so to speak, in these head-to-head competitions. I think for the Red Sox, it's trying to stay above 500. And for the Yankees, you're chasing the Rays and the Orioles. So you've got to stay close to them. So if you're at that 10-game over 500 mark, you're still in third place. So you still got to keep pace with those those uh, those players in front of you. And for the Red Sox, you're trying to keep your head above water and staying, staying above 500. That's a big deal to stay in the wild card race. There's an, obviously there's an extra wild card spot there up for grabs this, this year and, and including last year. So that that's, you know, that's not nothing, you know, the Red Sox could still stay in this thing and, and sneak in and be in that wild card race at, at the very end, but it looks like it's going to come out of the American league East. So these games are even more important when you beat up on each other. 
David Cohn of the Yes Network and ESPN. People will be tuning in this Sunday night and next Sunday night here in Boston. Uh, David, thanks so much for giving us some time today. Look forward to seeing you at the stadium over the weekend, and we'll be watching uh, the next two weekends. Thanks for being on with us, David. My pleasure, Sean. Always good to be on with you.